Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. All right, welcome to the Chris Waddell Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today, I am with Justin Fonksavon, who just recently, I'm getting the nod because I actually pronounced his name correctly, I think, <laughs> who just recently broke Actually, I don't want to say you broke because you you smashed the world record. I mean, just absolutely smashed it. So what is it? 1.3 meters. And so what is that? Four point, uh, uh, what is it? Over four feet, right? So four feet mm -hmm. change. I mean, it's just, it's, that is, that is huge. Like we, we were watching during the Olympic trials and uh, Ryan Krauser broke the shot put world record and they're talking about him smashing the shot put world record and that was by eight inches you went mm -hmm. four plus feet so justin is relatively new to the game he is headed to tokyo he's at the chula vista training center outside of south of san diego justin thank you for joining us really appreciate it of course chris no problem thank you now this is awesome so looking at what you've done is this what you imagined that you could have done? I mean, this has been a pretty compressed uh, acceleration in your career. Yeah, it, it, when I first started, it was I did not think I would be throwing this far after seeing my first time ever throwing a javelin. It was like 14 meters. And to now almost double the first time I picked up my javelin, it's just it all, all the credit has to go to my coach. I mean, without her, I would have never been in a position to throw this far. Who is your coach? Uh, Erica Wheeler. She's a 96 Olympian in javelin. 96 Olympian in javelin. And does that translate? So, I mean, I'm guessing it does, right? I mean, she's an Olympian. She throws standing up, right? I mean, we watch the javelin where it's like, what is the run in? I mean, it's like these guys are sprinting in. They're, they're launching the javelin pretty much going like horizontal, parallel to the ground, mm -hmm. catching themselves before they go over the line. You, however, are sitting in a chair, you're strapped in a chair so that your butt can't even move, your legs can't move, your butt can't move. You are, you are as locked in as you can possibly be. How does that translate uh, to what you're trying to do in the javelin? She's a, she's a genius. She knows what I can't move and what I can't do, uh, so to speak, with my, you know, physical uh, attributes that I have now. And so she has thought it through and she's also coached multiple seated world record holders, gold medalists um, that were actually in a higher class than me, which means they had more, they had less function than I. And so, yeah, over her decade of coaching, she's known how to apply able body throwing to Paralympic throwing and make those subtle adjustments that tailor towards me and what I can do. Throwing a javelin is hard, right? I mean, this is like, I mean, we kind of look at it to the uneducated eye, right? We look at it and say, oh, okay. So it's somebody running down a runway and throwing this thing, but to get all of, to get the maximum amount out of throwing a javelin is is super scientific. I mean, it's really, really hard. And you are a track athlete. I mean, you, 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 you have the benefit of having been 
a great having been a great athlete before before ending up in a wheelchair and you know i mean what you were you're all conference football player track athlete both 100 200 and you threw the shot and the discus now and you wrestled as well wrestled up to 220 pounds so you're not a you're not a little guy <laughs> absolutely not no i was always big you're always big is that what you said yeah now from what you did before though what's absent is the javelin <laughs> why are you throwing the javelin how did you end up throwing the javelin yeah they we don't offer javelin in iowa in high school and so i was never even introduced into it until i got into paralympic sports and so i looked at my classes and how they were grouped together in the paralympics and javelin just made the most sense it was uh class just right for me so i was only competing against people in the same category as me as for shot put and discus i was competing with people that had more function than me and so i had a severe disadvantage and uh when i did the you know opportunity costs and weighed the benefits uh javelin was just the one that made sense so i could focus on that be a master of javelin and not just a jack of all field events can you describe a little bit what that means the the function part of it because this is a really big deal in in paralympic sport with the idea of classification and function and a level playing field or actually being being competitive right mm -hmm. so what i mean um is because i'm a complete t2 paraplegic means I'm paralyzed from the chest down. I have no function of my abs, no function of my hips or my legs. So I'm in the F54 category, which was designed for only people of the same impairment. Then when you start adding numbers to the classification, that means it's more functionality that they have. So for example, a 55 compared to a 54, a 55 has a full control and use of their abdominal muscles. So they could, you know, do a sit-up where I can't do a sit-up. And then you start going higher, 56, you know, they have some hip movement, 57, they have leg movement, at least one leg, 58, they're completely ambulatory, but they're just sitting at that point. So you are throwing a javelin. Can you describe what goes into the throw? Like, can you talk us through how this all, because when you look at it, right, I mean, you've thrown 33 29 to break the world record, which for those people who did not learn the metric system is 109 feet and three inches effectively. I mean, rounding up, right? Two and two and change inches. But how does, how does this work? Because that's from a seated position, right? So you're throwing this from a seated position over 100 feet. I mean, almost 110 feet. How do you how do you make that happen without your arm falling off? Yeah, so sometimes it feels like my arm is going to fall off, but it, it's uh it's all about uh, it comes down to really scientific. Uh, like you were saying, it's you could be the strongest guy in the world and still not throw as far of a javelin as a person who could be a foot shorter and 150 pounds lighter. It's because it's about how much energy you're putting through the javelin in a single point that's what we call throwing through the point 
And so you want to send the grip through the tip, essentially. And the javelin is uh, the only field event where you can foul in multiple ways, because not only does the javelin have to stay in the sector, it has to break the plane of flat, where the tip just has to barely turn over and land first. Otherwise, it's a foul. And in Paralympics, there's another way where, you know, like you said, you lose contact with any of your lower body from the chair. And yeah, it's so it's having to compensate for not having legs, but also gaining perpetual motion forward comes from the pull that I hold on to. Um, I can fully extend my arm and then pull my body up with my left arm while my right side stays in line with the jab and takes the energy that I'm gaining from the pole and moving my body from backwards to forward and sending that through my arm and then eventually through the javelin. Okay, so you're gonna to have to describe what your chair looks like because I'd imagine that most people are envisioning you throwing in your wheelchair, your regular wheelchair that you're getting around in. But this chair looks entirely different. And, and I mean, you have to secure it and everything, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a 75 inch tall, or 75 centimeter tall uh, wheelchair, or not a wheelchair, just a steel chair. It's, it's square, so it's 18 inches by 18 inches by 18 inches, perfectly square. And then it's got foot plates so I can put my feet onto it because my legs are not 75 centimeters tall, long. And so I strap in my feet, I strap in my lower body to the chair and the chair is actually strapped down to anchors in the ground. So the chair doesn't move or flex. I don't move. And the pole, if you could envision a box is on the outside of the box, but welded onto the essentially the box that I hold on to. And it's an inch and a half diameter uh, steel pole. It's actually two poles, it's a pole in a pole. So, because the rules say that the pole that I hold on to cannot flex more than the diameter of the pole. And being as strong and as, as heavy as I am, I pull that pole so hard that if I'm not in the right chair, the whole frame will bend. And it's, it's made out of uh, aluminum in this case for lightweight. And so, yeah, it's just a pure box with a pull on the end that I strap myself to that I strap to the ground. And so, so you, with your left hand, you hold onto this pole and mm -hmm. with your right hand, you're throwing. So, so the pole is basically like, like you're sitting in the middle of the chair and it's in the front of the chair. So you're, you're using it to get that momentum, your body momentum going forward, right? Exactly. And aid you in throwing your arm. One, one quick question how, how much do you weigh now? We saw that you, you wrestled up to 220. I mean, I know, I know you're not packing on the pounds. I mean, you're packing <laughs> on the muscle. Yeah, so I was actually, when I, before I was injured, I was 240. I was 6'1", 240. Um, and after I got injured, I dropped down weight after atrophy and everything and being in the hospital for months and not working out. I dropped down to about 175. And now I'm sitting at about 206. Okay. Which makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's just you lose all that weight in your legs because you just mm -hmm. don't have those, those big muscles. So, okay. So you're holding on to the pole with your left hand and you're throwing with your, with your right hand. How, 
what is that what does that feel like i mean it's just there's got to be a tremendous amount of stress on your arm because it's is is it all arm it looks like it's all arm yeah so it looks like it's all arm um it really is all the throws dependent on the left side actually getting me on top of my hips so i can actually get more through the javelin rather than just using only my arm but the arm is very is a very key player the right side arm that i'm holding the javelin with it's the thing that you know the hand speed through the javelin that uh could just produces the furthest throw and it's it's a very hard implement to throw it's very unforgiving once you get to the harder javelins so it's harder on the elbow it's harder on the shoulder it's harder on the wrist it's it's a very fun implement to throw. Do not get me wrong, but it's a very, very technical sport where like in shot put, you can get away with a little bit of a bad technique if you're really strong. And same with discus, if you, you could be very strong and you could be honestly a bodybuilder size and still throw discus really far. You don't see those kind of guys in javelin. They're usually a little skinnier. They're and they're just very, very flexible. And that's what makes a good javelin thrower is being flexible. So this being a little bit lighter is probably helpful too. I'd imagine, is, is that what's appealing to you? Is, is the solving the puzzle of the, of the javelin? Yeah, it's, it's a challenge that I love to do because it's something I've never done before. So I, I jumped in, I was like, let's do this. Let's figure out how to throw this, this spear. And it really is a spear. I mean, as we as we talked about before we came on, these field implements were implements of war back in the original, you know, back in the original Olympics, which has now become part of the Paralympics. It came to you pretty quickly, though. I mean, it came to you is to what do you attribute that? I mean, to having been an athlete, I mean, what you went to your your first event and started breaking national age group age group records mm -hmm. and things like that right and you did you get into it so so how soon afterwards were you able to get into it so i was injured at the end of october i was released from rehabilitation in on valentine's day and i started throwing that summer after the paralympic games started in 16 and 17 I had my first competition and then i trained the whole time from 16 and into 17 summer and at the and then I had my first competition I did a bunch hit all the national records like you said uh, for my age group and then in 2018 I got invited out to an international meet in Ireland with uh, some of my teammates from Glassa and that's when I hit my national A team standard and that's when you know everything changed I was you know I got the attention of a national team coach. I got able, I was able to move to the Olympic training center. I was, you know, starting to get paid. I was provided all these resources now as an elite athlete that uh, propelled me now to throw even further than I was. So that was a short period of time, right? I mean, so this basically mm -hmm. is like, so you were, you were 18 at the accident and then, and then this is by 20. Mm -hmm. You effectively were 
we're on the A team. We're, we're, we're on the U.S. team. What does the, the A team standard mean? Because a lot of people won't know. I mean, we talked about it a bunch at the trials, but what does that mean? Yeah, the national A team standard is based on the world rankings from the previous year. Uh, historically, this was a year where they took the results from 2019, the cumulative after the end of the year, who had the first, second, third, and whoever had that third place throw in the world, uh, that is now your A standard. And now, and then the fifth place throw in the world of the previous year is B standard. And those are the only two standards we have where uh, monetary value is assigned to that standard. Otherwise there's emerging and all that other uh, almost introductory standards that athletes need to have. And so that's, the A is the one that matters the most. It's the podium potential. Right. Well, this is the thing, right? I mean, so, 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 I mean, you're talking about the funding, you're talking about the coaching, but all of a sudden you're a metal contender. Mm-hmm. This is, this is it. You are a metal contender. What are you going to do with it? Was that shocking to you at all? Or was it just kind of, this is the necessary step to get, get where I need when I actually hit my first A standard, it was a massive shock. I, uh, I knew I was throwing, I was throwing about 25, 26 uh, leading up to that. And then when we got to Ireland and I competed, I won two golds in shot put and discus, but those aren't my bread and butter. Javelin was my bread and butter. And so I was very excited to do it. And I believe it was on my fourth or fifth throw where I threw 28.01 which at that time was uh, almost second in the world. And it was a meter and a half further than I've ever thrown before. And so when I knew what my standards were going into it and I immediately shot up to A standard and was ecstatic. And it was, I, I didn't know it would happen. It was a huge shock, almost like hitting the world record. I was, I, it, was it was unfathomable the, the emotions that were going through me then. What was the competition like? Were you getting pushed by other people from other countries who were throwing far or how did it work? Did you just have a great day? Yeah, so I was actually, there's very few times in the nation and um, pretty much just in the nation where there's uh, individuals that even throw seated javelin. I think there's only a handful. And so, and usually they're, they have higher function than me. They're a higher, they're a, uh, I guess a higher class. And so I don't really have a ton of competition. So it's always against myself in that situation. Um, I had my teammates and the coaching and all of uh, the crowd basically just feeding me energy. And I was just utilizing that and I channeled it and produced it into my throw and it was major. Was that the biggest stage that you had been on? No, believe it or not, it was actually the year before that at um, 2017 national championships in UCLA. Uh, it wasn't a huge meet. It was it was kind of bad weather, sprinkling, but the turnout of people was pretty significant. Uh, they might not have been cheering for me. They might not know who I was, but they were still cheering for other people. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, we'll just say these guys are cheering for me, and I used it. And I didn't I didn't throw as well. Um, you know, it was a year early, and I was I was not as seasons as I was in 2018 but yeah I was probably the biggest crowd I've competed at so the one in UCLA was a bigger crowd 
but you still had a crowd in in Ireland as well. It sounds like. Oh yeah, we had a big big team, and we had you know other competitors that were there too. So yeah, it was a decent size. It was decent size. Now, a lot of people don't know how the field events work, right? So you take you take six throws. How does how does that work? Because you're saying that even at this event in Ireland, you were basically competing against yourself. So at something like that, do you take all six throws at once? Because uh, we're used to sort of seeing, okay, so-and-so throws, and then so-and-so, the next person throws. But you guys have to go and get into your chair. You have to strap the chair down. You have to strap yourself down. It's not quite as easy as just getting into the ring and throwing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how does how does that work? How did that work in Ireland, and how does it how will it work at the Paralympics? So the rules are standard across the board. What we do is you get four minutes to get into your chair, strap in, and practice, and then you start your series, and you will do all six throws straight through. You will not change out chairs. No one else will come in. No one else will be after your first throw. It's just you six throws you have one minute in between each throw to throw again and so that's how it was in Ireland that's how it's going to be at the games that's how it is at every competition it just takes too much time to get the athletes out of the chair unstrap the chair and then put in their personal chair and so I mean it makes sense it's also one of those things where if you don't do well in the beginning and you're the number one thrower um, you kind of have to watch everyone go and patiently hope no one passes you yeah. And, and how do they do like the seating order? So, so whether you go first, is it random or, or is it based on, on uh, rank? Uh, it's supposed, I believe it's supposed to be based on rank. So number one goes last and so on and so forth. Um, but when I went to Dubai, I went in number one, but I went number three. So it was one of those things where it could have been random. I mean, it's cool that it's random, but I think it's supposed to be off ranking. Interesting. And what's that like psych- psychologically to, you know, to get in, know that you have six throws and how many minutes in between throws do you have, did you say? You just, you just have one minute. One minute in between throws. So it's just mm-hmm. boom, 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 boom. I mean, it's, it's they pretty much, is, that's the amount of time that it takes them to get the javelin back to you. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's definitely quick. So what's, what's that like? I mean, this is, you know, I mean, like I, I competed too, right? I mean, the psychological part of like being ready is, is, is the thing that can trigger all of the training that you put in, all of the work mm-hmm. that you put in. What's that psychological part and how are you, how are you triggering it so that you're, so that you're getting your best, your best performance? So even before I was injured, I never listened to music or never listened to anything when I'm working out. Um, I kind of get in my own head and I motivate myself in my own head by telling myself, you know, motivational things. And I just get myself amped up. So when I am in the chair and I do have to take my six throws, if my first throw is not where I needed to be, I get back to the game plan. I know what I need to do. I work a lot on visualization of the perfect throw every day in and out. It almost keeps me up at night sometimes visualizing the perfect throw. And so when I'm there, I know what I need to do. I take the vision and I 
almost like put my body into it and I feel every step, every muscle twitch that needs to twitch when it needs to. And then I just keep going and going and going. And by the fourth throw, if it's not there, then I better just send it as much as I can, whatever technique it's having on that day. I just send it and hope it's the first throw of the competition that day. Really? So is there, is there like a routine that you go through? I mean, you talk about the visualization. Is there a specific time? I mean, it sounds like you do it all day long. Do it all day. Of, really? You're just visualizing all the time, but then in order to, in order to sort of sharpen that visualization or to sharpen that, uh, that sense of preparedness, is there anything that you do that day, like as you're getting strapped down or beforehand or? I, I don't like to um, talk about like, oh yeah, I'm going to go out there and break the world record today. I'm going to go out there and win a gold medal. I don't, I don't do that. I, I go out there with the mindset of I'm going to give this 100% of what I can do and I'm going to leave it all on the field. And that's, I don't like to, you know, quote unquote, jinx it to be like, I'm going to win. And then I don't win. I put too much pressure on myself to do great. So when I do open up with a bad throw and I'm like, I'm not great anymore. You know, I don't want to put that pressure on myself. And so, I mean, leading up to the competition, uh, we don't do any static stretching. So nothing, no stretching where you stop and hold something. We want our muscles to be loose, but tight. It's the weirdest contradiction uh, and so what we do is we just warm up slightly. I usually wake up five to six hours before my competition. So my central nervous system has a time to wake up and fire properly. And, and so I just make sure I'm loose. I'm ready to go. I usually talk amongst my teammates. I kind of get that camaraderie. I don't ever just get in my own zone. Cause then I get in my own head. There's a lot that goes into it, but it's just over the years of being an athlete and competing, you kind of learn what you need and your little niche to uh, succeed. And that's what mine is. So to a certain extent, it's kind of like you've, you've done all the work, no need to think about it right now, because that's just going to, that's just going to be detrimental really. I mean, I, I, I did a lot of the same thing, like before ski race, it was like, okay, I've done everything. I don't want to, I don't want to think about it right now because mm -hmm. otherwise I'm just consuming myself with it. And, and you're not really yeah. that loose and fun and, you know, just out there. Okay. Now I'm just performing. Now's the fun part. I get to, I get to have a good time. Exactly. Uh, so what do you, uh, what do you do after you throw that? So you throw, and this is, I mean, it's going to happen relatively quickly, right? Because, because you have six throws, you have a minute in between. So really for each, each athlete, you're going to have what six to ten minutes that they're that they're actually mm -hmm. throwing. I guess you have four minutes to, to to get set up and everything. So, is there somebody standing there with a clock? I mean, that can be a little bit a little bit worrisome. Yeah, there, there's a there's a clock uh, right there next to you. It's counting you down just in case you know you need to take a mental break. You got one minute, so you can kind of you know time yourself to know you're like, hey, I'm taking too much time. I need to hurry up. Um, and yeah, after you're done throwing, you just, you transfer back into your chair, they take out your chair and you sit there and you watch everyone throw after you and hope no one passes your mark. Which is, which is true for a lot of other sports. It's just not in throwing. You're sort of used to one person goes one throw and then 
then everybody does the second round, then the third round, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And it's like, oh, okay, you need to step it up because so and so went big in the first round, and you know what you have to do. This is like, this is it. This is just empty the tank yeah. as best you can. Are you pretty good at the mental side of the game? Is that one of your strengths? Yeah, I've I've never had to utilize sports psych. I uh, I. Like my muscle memory is phenomenal. I mean, even after my injury, I was very big and strong before. And the first time I went to the weight room, five months after I was paralyzed, I benched 315. It, I mean, I didn't lose. I mean, I lost a lot, but I didn't. My muscle memory is still there. I still know how to do things. So, so that's when, you know, we train. We throw 40 to 50 javelins a day. And of those 40 to 50, probably – 40% of them are perfect throws and it's only at 40% now because I haven't been throwing that long in five years or of, you know, elite training at a high level, that 40% will probably go to 70% or 80%. So there's no variable for bad throws. And so my body right now is so seasoned that it knows what to do. I don't have to tell it what to do. And so that's why I just, I, my, the mental is just, it's very easy because I just, I trust in myself and have faith. So that's amazing that your, your muscles, I mean, it's amazing that you went and were benching 315, which for the uneducated, that means that you have three plates on each side. So, so 225, I've always kind of thought of as sort of the threshold of when you, when you kind of consider yourself to be strong and that's uh that's two plates, but then this is an additional 45 pound plate on each side. Is that something that helps you? I want to, I, you know what? I had something that I was thinking about with the technical side of your throwing. That's a little bit different. Cause you also, you have a, uh, you were saying you pull with, with your left hand or with your left arm and throw and you have two choices of where you can put that pole, right? So you're sitting and you're facing the field. So your chest is projected into the field. But, and you can put that pole on the left side of the chair of the seat and pull there. But you actually look like you have it right in the middle. Is that yeah. true? And, and why have you chosen to go that way? So I ch- we... I used to throw the pole to my left. Um, I would pull straight up and down my left. Um, that's how I threw 2801 in Ireland. Those are the pole on my left. We changed the straddle uh, where the pole's directly down the middle of the field, um, right in the line of sight, because it just made more sense. Uh, and it was just easier to pull straight up and straight back uh, without any room for error of you know having to pull straight up on the left side then I have to try to compensate without having abs to get my body straight around and it was too hard and the variable was too high for uh small throws and large throws I mean there was there was a it was a dime and a dozen that I get a far throw with that kind of technique and luckily it did happen once in comp and so when I moved to the training center we immediately stopped doing that and we moved to the strata position is just more optimal for all of our forces. Well, which, which makes sense in a lot of ways. I mean, you're talking about, you pull on that, that pole that's directly in front of you. So you pull yourself toward the pole 
as you're throwing and watching watching other people who have who have the pole on the left side if they're throwing with their right arm one of the things that looks like it happens that happens is that they end up losing the javelin to the right that it, mm-hmm. it kind of fades to the right right as opposed yeah. to as opposed to when you're going forward but the problem when you're going forward is that you're pulling yourself directly into the pole how yeah. does how, how does that because that's i mean your follow-through is is basically into the pole how how does that work muscle memory i mean don't get me wrong when it first happened i probably smacked my face and my chest two or three times and after a while i was like i don't want to do that again let's uh let's realize the relationship distance between the pole and myself and uh the follow-through yeah it's all there but then now you gotta know when to pull the head left and when to slow down the chest because there's no need to keep accelerating forward when the jab's already out of your hand. But that's part of your follow through though too, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're if you're continuing to move forward, it's kind of like you're following all the way through, which is probably good for your arm. And it's kind of like baseball pitchers, right? That talking about mm-hmm. almost like extending all the way down to the ground or whatever and not short arming it and getting all those muscles, those little short muscles, putting those small muscles in the back of your shoulder, putting on the brakes, right? So mm-hmm. how do you how do you end up compensating? Because one of the issues is your physical health too, right? I mean, your health of your shoulders, if, if both shoulders aren't healthy, you go around in circles, right? And they're pretty small circles if you're just pushing mm-hmm. with one arm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's years of training. Uh, my, my arm follows through beautifully. It just never hits the pole and it just goes off to the right and slows down uh my body my it's because i'm holding on to the pole i can shift my head to the left of the pole before i even get there so my body follows through and um it slows down because i can actually push against it and so it it all works out i've like i said i've only smacked my face a couple times um there are guys in my class that put a pad on the pole and just smack it every time as hard as they can and uh feel like that's not for me and so i learned pretty quick that uh let's just get out of the way of the pole but let's do it in a safe manner well if you're moving your head to the left of the pole in some ways it's almost like you're you're compensating for that for that fade as well right Mm -hmm. that if you're if you're throwing in that direction and if you're moving your head left you're going to keep the the javelin more down the center of the Mm -hmm of the i mean just from as, as the uneducated right here you're absolutely right though your head has to get out of the way your head definitely has to get out of the way and and you as you said you know when you haven't done that the right way now can can we back up a little bit cuz cuz some of the mental mental toughness is is that something i mean it's always this this show is about resilience you know, and like, how do you, how do you move forward? And I mean, your, your accident in a lot of ways was, was an extreme case. I mean, like you, you got, you got shot by someone at a McDonald's who, you know, it was, I mean, who knows exactly what the full interaction was, or well, I guess you would know what the full interaction was, but are you able to, are you able to, do you hold a grudge against that guy or are you able to let go of, of what he did to you? How does that work? Uh, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'll never like the guy. Uh, I think uh, everything that he did was 
uncalled for, no matter uh, what his excuse was to why he did it. Um, well, tell us a little bit of the story, if you don't mind, please. Yeah. So it was in October 2015, me and my friend were going camping. I owned an RV, part of the camper, and we were going to McDonald's to get some food around 1030 at night. Went inside, got some food, and we were leaving, unbeknownst to us, an individual was following us out. And he went to his car, grabbed his gun, did not say a word to me, then assaulted my friend, uh, hit him with a, the pistol across the forehead, gashed him open. That's when I went to the other side of the car, got in between him and my friend, and tried to deter the situation. And uh, he was very hostile. But luckily, the guy who shot us, his wife came out and stopped everything. And the guy left, went to his car. I tended to my friend, make sure he was okay. He was completely conscious. I went to the other side of the car to grab my phone to call the police. And that's when the guy was seven yards behind me and opened up his car door. I turned around because I heard it. He mounted up onto his door in his car and proceeded to shoot at us. He shot me twice, once in the leg, once in the arm that paralyzed me and he missed once. And then he shot at my friend and shot him and missed once as well. What what a crazy shock this has to be, right? I mean, just just in general, like nobody is used to, to getting shot at, right? Yeah, no, yeah, it was completely random. I mean, he was not provoked in any way. He just, you know, like he said, he claimed he had a mental illness and uh, took it upon himself. And so, I mean, one of the things it's it's kind of interesting, right? I mean, we've been through a a more traumatic event than than most people will in their lives, right? Just, I mean, you you go from walking one day to suddenly not walking the next day, and and I've found that it's something that's almost incomprehensible, like to figure out how did these pieces all come together, how yeah. do. You know, I mean, it's like, well, this was this and it just happened to be at the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time. How do you how, how did you make peace with that? And did that happen immediately or or did it take a while? Yeah, it was about three days after I got shot up in the ICU uh, an IV in my neck, a chest tube through my lung and a pick line in my wrist and I had a decent amount of alone time. I had, you know, my friends and my family visit when they can during the uh, visitation hours, but there was times where I was alone and I would just sit up there and stare at the ceiling for hours on end, just thinking like, what is my life going to be? What is it now? Am I going to die now? Am I, what's my medical condition? Am I going to walk? Uh, fear of the unknown, essentially. And that's when it was about three days. And I said, all right, Justin, you got two options. You can sit here and wallow in self-pity, wondering why me, why me, what if, what is, or you can just take the bull by the horns and get going and start this process, start living faster instead of just dragging your heels in the dirt. And so that's what I did. I, I hit rehabilitation like it was a competition. I raced through it. I learned everything. I watched YouTube videos of people who have done this for 30 plus years and they've lived happy lives. And I was like, why would I not be able to? What makes me different where I can't be happy and these other people are? So I went into it with a good attitude and it was infatuating to not only me, but to other people. And so 
it just kept propelling me like let's do it let's climb higher let's do better let's move faster and then yeah it was three days where I made the decision to not give up and just keep going full force so, so it really was that action that got mm-hmm. you going it was it was okay I have there's a there's a challenge there's a problem I'm the only one who can solve it mm-hmm. yeah and it was it was taking the first step is the hardest it was it was just diving into it and because it's always that you get that almost like social anxiety where you know you get into an event like that you're not too comfortable with let's say like you're going to a party you don't know anybody and you're kind of shy you're nervous you didn't want to go but your friends convinced you but once you're there and you get acclimated about 10 minutes after you're having the time of your life and it's some of the best memories you're going to have and that's exactly what i did i was those three days were my shy period and then i did it and so did you have to have did you have to have surgery on your on your spinal cord too or no the bullet goes in because uh, he was so close and it was such a high caliber um bullet it was a hollow point so it broke into five different fragments after it went through my lung and four of them just floated off into wherever but one of them went straight in between the two uh bones and like there's like the vertebrae and it just went right in and severed the spinal cord and just lodged itself in there and it went in sterile. It's still in there. It's steady. Scar tissue goes around it. And so it doesn't move and nothing else happens. And so they just didn't see a reason to take it out if they didn't need to. Wow. Now, the thing is also you become, you become, you become weak like overnight, right? I mean, this is, this is kind of the amazing thing. So like I had, I had my accident, but then years later, I mean, what was this? This was like, 15 years later, uh, 17 years later, something like that, I had surgery to straighten my spine, which in a lot of ways is like breaking your back again. Mm -hmm. And I went into the surgery, I trained for the surgery, it was the year after I'd retired. And and I was in as good a shape as I had been the previous year, like I was training, and, and I was ready to go. And I get and the next day, they wake me up. And they're like, Okay, this is it like time to get up. And I'm like, I, I can't move. Like I can't even, I can't even lift myself. Yeah. It was incredible. Did, did you go through that physical part of, I mean, cause it's, it's the attendant stuff too, isn't it? I mean, it's not just, it's like, okay, well you can't walk anymore. And you're like, well, I can't walk anymore, but I used my, but like my arms used to be strong and yeah. now my arms aren't strong. Like what, what's going on here? Yeah, it's, it's the craziest thing. I mean, I laid down for three days. I did not move. Uh, and when I actually first had to sit up, I almost passed out. It was, it was crazy. And yeah, my legs started immediately just shrinking, just atrophy. I was dropping pounds like crazy. And I was, I was very weak. My, my arms luckily were still stronger than probably most, even at my weakest, um, so transferring came easier uh, from the aspect of a physical, from the physical aspect, not from a technique. Because I mean, transferring takes a ton of technique um, and body manipulation. So yeah, that took me, it, my turnover rate from being able-bodied to being a productive uh, disabled person was significantly faster. And how about the emotional part? I mean, you, you talked about the action, right? I mean, it's like, okay. I've got to do the action. I've got to move forward. People have good lives. This is the way things go. Get going. 
stop, you know, stop feeling sorry for yourself. But what about the, the emotional part? Like, did you, did you have to forgive at least in your own mind that guy or, or is this one of those that you just can't forgive ever? No, I definitely didn't forgive him. Uh, I don't, I don't uh, see myself ever. I, I think what he did was unforgivable and it just, I mean, it's not up to me. It's up to uh, his, his, his creator and everything. And, you know, if there is a time in my life where I do start reconvening with what's going on in my head and, you know, with my faith and everything, and it's time to let go of those. Um, yeah, maybe, but to, to move forward, uh, if anything, it was my anger at not only him, but my situation uh, physically that propelled me to move forward even faster. And so you were in the hospital for what, for four months, right? I mean, you were there for a long mm -hmm. time. Yeah, October, the, basically November 1st to February. And so what happened, what happened afterwards? Cause it's, cause you were, you were an electrician, right? Or an apprentice electrician at the time. And, and cause I mean, there's so many different parts of this, right? I mean, it's, it's not just the, the walking around part of it. It's the, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with the rest of my life? And how did that, how did that plan come together? Was it, was it sport that, that came into your life right afterwards? So I was in a unique situation where I was in the hospital from October 25th to Thanksgiving, and I shipped out to a spinal cord rehabilitation in Omaha, Nebraska called Madonna. And I stayed there for three, four weeks. And then I went to acute rehab in Omaha, Nebraska, where I learned how to live by myself. And we planned for the future. I got fitted for a wheelchair, all that stuff. And there is when I kind of started planning my life outside of living in rehab. And I realized pretty quick that college is going to be the best avenue to take to open my horizons. And so I pretty much had to find a major in the time I was getting ready to leave. And so I was like, all right, well, how do I make the most money? And how do I do it the easiest way? And they're like, well, that's not how making a lot of money works. And so I said, all right, well, I like numbers. Let's do accounting. Accounting is pretty versatile. It can go anywhere in the country. I can do anything I want. And so I decided to do accounting. And then I got discharged in Valentine's Day, like I said, and school was already in session. I couldn't enroll in community college. And so I had to wait till the summer. But that in between was when I found Paralympic sport and was introduced to it. And so, yeah, it definitely gave me a hobby to do and a deterrent from just putting my nose in the books and reading every single day and just being a bored college student. And so what did it, what did sports, what did sports do for you? I mean, sports was always a part of who you were, right? And what, yeah, it, but, but isn't that, I mean, sometimes you think, well, that's the thing that's been taken away from me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't think sports was, uh, available i knew nothing about the paralympics i've watched numerous olympic games ever since i could remember and since i was old enough to realize you know these are elite athletes and so when the director of the local adaptive sports club in iowa said hey you heard of the paralympics i had no clue when he handed me a throwing chair he said this is what you got to do now this is how you throw 
And I said, well, I know how to throw. Let me just modify it. And so I started throwing shot and disc in my backyard. And um, then, you know, after a while, found my love for javelin. But, uh, yeah, sports gave me an outlet when in the beginning when I was growing up, I was um, I went through foster care from age two to five. And I was luckily adopted by uh, my mom at age five. And she immediately enrolled me in sports. I had so much energy as a kid. I just she couldn't contain me. And she said, you know what? This is the easiest way. We're going to throw you in sports, football, wrestling. Let's put you in it. And that was exactly what I needed. I met friends. I built my body um, to how I needed it to be for wrestling, big back, strong arms, strong legs. And it just gave me an outlet and it gave me something to do and to be a part of something and to keep competing was just the best thing. And I mean, you learn life lessons from athletics and sports that you can apply to a daily life. And that's exactly what, uh, that's why I am who I am today is because of sports and to have that back, it's just incredible. And I would imagine it's the same kind of stuff, right? I mean, it's the same kind of sense of like the community, the, mm-hmm. the pride in yourself, which I don't know about you, but, but that was one of my worries when I was in the hospital was, okay, am I ever, am I going to have friends again? I mean, granted, you know, you have people who are visiting you in the hospital and it's like, okay, that's one part of it, but what happens in the real world? Yeah, I, uh, I've definitely had people that were in my life before my injury leave because of my injury. And, but luckily all of my friends that I had, I've had my friends since, like sixth grade, all the way through high school, we were all great buddies and they never left my side. They stuck by me and they still stick by me and they still support me. I hang out with them every time I go home to Iowa and we still reconvene. I mean, friends, you don't have to talk every day you to you know still be best friends. You pick up right where you left off no matter the duration of time. And so it was, I didn't lose any friends besides a couple uh, people that were there that left, but you know, who needs them? What, what do your buddies say? Those buddies who've been with you the whole time, what do they think of what you're doing now? Oh, they love it. They think it's great, but they always find a way to tease me about it. And so that's what buddies do. You know, they always talking and always having a good time. <laughs> They're teasing you. What are, what are they saying? How are they teasing you? Uh, they, they always think, they always call me like, oh, they're like, oh, you know, you're a disabled Olympian. And I was like, you know, I mean, you're not wrong. And so then they're like, oh, you throw 33 meters. And then they'll like pick up a rock and be like, there you go. There's your world record. And I'm like, all right, man, calm down, you know. And so, yeah, they definitely always tease me about little things. And we can joke about my situation because we're both, we're all comfortable with it. And I have no problem if they, you know, throw out a slang term for uh, someone that's disabled. And I don't care about that. I mean, they're my buddies. And yeah, we've said words to each other. Do you, do you get these guys in your chair? I mean, get, get them in your throwing chair and see how far they can throw it, getting all strapped down and everything. I've, I've had Olympians get into my chair and throw it, and they can't throw as far as me. So it's, it's humbling. And the best is when they get into my wheelchair and they think that, oh, this is so easy. Then they do a wheelie and immediately fall on their head. And they're just like, yep, what I tell you, man, they're going to end up in this chair just like me if you keep doing that. 
That is funny. Now the college thing ended up working out well in some ways, right? I mean, because it's because you went back to school, but then making the team, you ended up getting a free ride to school, didn't you? Yeah. So I, I went to community college two years. I got two degrees and my an associates. And then I basically applied to every big university in Iowa, Drake, Iowa State, Iowa, got accepted to all of them. And I plan on going to uh, Iowa State and then Drake. Um, and I was enrolled in classes. And then they offered me the opportunity to move to the training center. I didn't know college was going to be a thing. I was just going to say, all right, you know, I'll take two years, train, and do this while I'm still, you know, young-ish. And then they were like, hey, here's, you want free college while you're staying at the training center? Training just four hours a day? And I was like, yeah, take up my time, please. I'm bored. And so I enrolled and got my bachelor's degree. And now I'm getting my master's degree while I'm still training. And, and it's part of, so it's DeVry, right? Which is a sponsor of the mm -hmm. U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Correct. Yeah, DeVry and Keller Graduate School of Management. That's awesome. So now in the interim between, so you broke the world record and then you're going to Tokyo. Mm -hmm. What happens in that? Because this is really, I mean, it's like two months of time in between. What do you, what do you do? Stay healthy. That is the first thing. Injury free. I've been battling injuries for the last three, four months uh, since the beginning of the year, honestly. And the, um, so it's just rehabbing those, staying healthy, um, training smart and consistent, and just not trying to make any drastic changes. I'm throwing at a high caliber. There's no reason to change anything that I'm doing. It's just fine tuning the problem areas that so I'm more consistent on a daily basis. And so on, in every competition, I want my, I want that world record to be an average throw. That's how elite I want to get to throwing. And now it's just slow and steady, do what you can, do what you know how to do and just stay healthy. What, is that hard mentally? You know, cause like the build is often, is often the really fun part, right? Where it's like, you see those, you see those big gains and it's like, oh, this is so cool. Like, I can't wait to get back out tomorrow. And now you're talking about sort of the incremental little gains and being smart. Uh, is that a big enough challenge in some ways to keep you, to keep you focused? Yeah, what a great question. Yeah, it's, it definitely is because I know if my coach just says, do what you think you need to do. I would be in the weight room pushing heavy weights. I'd be doing everything that I can just to be stronger, more fit, look better. And yeah, and I mean, it's, it's nice to be humbling and bring myself down and know that this is a brains over bronze type thing. I mean, I've, I've done, I did the work. I put in the work for the last, you know, three years now with COVID. Uh, and so my body's perfect. It's the javelin body I needed to be. Now maintain it, like just chill. It's okay to go easy. Well, I would imagine for you that is a big enough challenge to to chill because I mean you're talking mm -hmm. about yeah. Give, give me university, you know. Give me college because because I'm bored, you know. Give me something <laughs> to do. I need to I need to be be active. So. So this is kind of putting it in a different in a different direction, but uh, I Justin one huge fan like that's awesome what you did 
with the world record. I mean, blew the world record out of the water. I can't wait to watch you in Tokyo. Thanks so much for, for joining us here and sharing your story with us and, and good luck getting out there. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, I look forward to meeting you in person one of these days as well. So, Absolutely. Uh, exactly. So uh, thank you to all of you for joining us. We really appreciate it. The highest compliment that you can pay for us is to tell your friends, tell your friends to tune in, to check this out, to share the story. Justin will be, we will edit this and, and we'll put it on the Facebook page. So it'll be on tomorrow. If you didn't get a chance to see the whole thing, you can go back and watch the whole thing. And then it'll end up being a, a regular podcast. So you can watch it on YouTube, on Spotify, on Apple, all those places that you watch your, watch your podcast. So thanks so much for joining us. And thank you, Justin. And we will, uh, we will see you soon. Thanks, man. Thank you so much.